political power, but at what cost? A dark and dying world needs to see a tangible representation of a holy and a righteous and a just God. And that's the role given to the body of Christ. But it seems as if the goal of too many Christians these days is grabbing political power by any means necessary. Is it worth it? Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, Is It Worth It? For more than three decades, since my very first time voting, I have been staunchly supporting the Republican Party. I was entirely a party-line voter, and through 2020, I never voted for a single Democratic candidate for any office, not even a local sheriff or a school board. And that included voting for President Trump in both 2016 and 2020. In retrospect, my perfect attendance record of party-line voting is to my shame, not to my credit. Uh, because by December 2020, I was quite sorry that I had voted for him. So I share my voting record only as credentials for what I have to say from here on out, not really as bragging. And I think I'm qualified to discuss the Republican Party and its flaws as someone who's been a faithful, long-term insider. As a matter of fact, I'm still solidly conservative on quite a few topics, especially a number of areas where I believe that the Democratic Party's positions are untenable for a long-term future for our nation. So while numerous posts on my blog concerning social issues clash with typical Republican platforms, I still wish for the balance that the Republicans bring to America, or I should say at least what they used to bring. So as such, I have a strong personal interest in the future of the Republican Party. Also, for more than four decades, I've been a committed practicing evangelical Christian. I fully realize, again, that numerous posts on my blog concern social issues that clash with typical evangelical positions. Still, I should say that what motivated me for decades still motivates me today. A commitment to the Lord, a commitment to sharing the good news with those around me, a belief in the importance of the scriptures, and a belief in a personal salvific relationship with Jesus as the Lord of my life. And as such, despite an awakening awareness of some flaws of evangelicalism, I have a strong personal interest in the future of the church. So with this background and perspective, what I'm watching happening on the political and religious scenes is both appalling and nearly incomprehensible to me. The Republican Party has tied its future almost inextricably to a deeply flawed, deeply immoral man who's willing to tell any half-truth or even a full lie, to roll over any human obstacle to show total disregard for liberty and human rights, and to act with utter disregard for good character, all just to maintain power. And his past and his continuing actions have the very real potential to permanently damage the very structure of our political system. And the evangelical church in America is throwing its full weight behind this man with total disregard for the damage to the church and the image and witness of Christ that the church bears. Now, Donald Trump won't be on the scene much longer, even if he were to win another term in office. The moment he were out of office, he'd be overtaken by a younger rising star like DeSantis. So here's the critical question. Is it worth giving up the church's witness 
and the party's integrity to throw their combined weight behind such a deeply flawed and deeply immoral man. One thing I recognize about the conservative and the evangelical training and upbringing that I had, both implicit and explicit, is that we were taught to deeply suspect and usually outright reject any ideas or messaging coming from the other side. Anything coming from the Democrats or socialists or communists was automatically off-limits to a real Republican. Anything coming from non-Christians, and even from Catholics or progressive Christians, was automatically anathema to evangelicals. It didn't matter how factual or thoughtful it was to be avoided or rationalized away at all costs. But the problem with that logic is that very, very often the other guys, quote-unquote, see things clearly that we don't see. In particular, the secular, skeptical, agnostic, even atheistic people around the church are keenly aware of hypocrisy. The church has been so good at grandstanding and soapboxing its message that there's really zero doubt in the world about what the evangelical church claims to stand for. But it's not been so good at actually doing what it talks about, and the doubters are looking intently into the church's behavior to ascertain whether there's actual truth behind the talk. And we could talk about the SBC's sexual abuse scandal or dozens of high-profile moral failures of megachurch pastors or the church's failure to look beyond abortion in its pro-life position or its rejection of the entire racial equality discussion, among many others. So as a result, when the world makes an observation about the church, chances are pretty high that there's at least some truth there. So when we discount those external observations, I think we miss the chance to learn from our own mistakes. Consider that the Bible is full of stories of the Lord using the Gentile world to judge his people. Many times the prophets warned Israel of its sin, but when the prophets were ignored, the Lord turned the task of judgment over to the surrounding nations. And the same thing happened after the Gospels, when the Lord used Roman persecution to rouse the fledgling church out of its comfort and spread it across the known world. And as an extra-biblical but very real example, consider the German church's pursuit of political influence and stability in the early 1900s, which led directly to oppression under Hitler, followed by the devastation of Germany in World War II and decades of oppression under communism and allied rule. And Germany's participation in World War I was also linked to Christian nationalism and popular support for the idea that Germans were God's chosen people. Now, none of this necessarily means that we should take the world's advice on how to live or how to solve our problems. After all, there's a necessary and an appropriate hesitation to take advice from someone who disagrees with one's fundamentals. But nonetheless, we should definitely pay close attention to the, what the world sees and criticizes, because it's quite likely very relevant to our condition. One of the primary calls on a Christian life is humility, and that includes valuing the ideas and opinions of others and holding our own wisdom lightly with a healthy sense of skepticism. So, back to the main question. Is it worth selling our souls to almost blindly support someone so flawed, all in the name of political power? Well, in this season, I have read dozens upon dozens of thoughtful, carefully crafted, deeply intelligent assessments of how the evangelical church has left its roots to throw its nearly full support behind President Trump. 
There are also plenty of studies showing the strong correlation between evangelicals and Trump supporters. The Venn diagram, if you will, is nearly a single circle. Many of the warnings to the church in the book of Revelation also seem applicable to the configuration of the church and politics that we see today, where the church is chasing after political power, after worldly influence, to secure its future and its comfort. In particular, Revelations chapter 17 describes the woman who is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, and she's sitting upon the beast which seems synonymous with the kings of the worldly system who are bent on destroying the seed of God, the true church. Many biblical scholars have understood Babylon to refer to the worldly systems that are opposed to God's purposes. Since earlier in Revelations 12, the woman is shown as the source of Christ's birth and then fleeing into the wilderness where she was pursued by the beast, it seems reasonable to infer that, on the whole, Revelation is describing the church that's left its first love and sold herself to the beast to gain riches and splendor and power. And it says, arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand. Yet she's riding the beast having ten heads and seven horns, which is exactly as a satanic kingdoms described in Revelation 13. Now, it's obviously impossible in this short time to adequately cover the topic, but I find it compelling, and I can point you to some detailed exegesis of this if you wish. The critical point here is that I see in Revelation a strong warning to the church about the dangers of selling itself for power and splendor. But that's exactly what I see happening in this season. The church wants a seat at the table, so to speak. It wants political power to remake America into its vision of a true Christian nation. But here's the problem. The American system is just another worldly system that ultimately opposes God's true kingdom. Any system ruled by the will of the people and founded upon majority rule opposes a system ruled by the will of the Lord Almighty, ruler of heaven and earth, and founded on self-sacrificial righteousness and justice, especially for the least of these. For all its human benefits, the American system is still fundamentally founded on a lot of distinctly worldly philosophy, like independence and personal power and autonomy and self-interest. And it's undergirded with thoughts and concepts directly from anti-Christian philosophy. Most of the founding fathers were actually deists, not Christians, who were heavily influenced by secular philosophers like Immanuel Kant, Thomas Paine, John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and others, springing from the recent 17th century Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, which backed away sharply from a Christian worldview and pressed into the idea that everything is understandable and the world can be made perfect without religion. Kant was a founder of liberal secularism. Locke was a strong secularist. Paine believed in secular humanism and opposed Christian religion. Rousseau was a secularist and opposed Christianity and politics. So, America's systems, while honoring and naming God in some ways, were nonetheless fundamentally founded on secular principles that stood in direct opposition to God's kingdom as a political foundation. A few references to God in the Declaration of Independence and various discussions and private writings of the founders cannot change this underlying systemic view of the world. And critically important, you cannot remake a worldly, God-opposing system in God's image. 
I find it impossible for America's political system to ever be a truly Christian system. And I think the founders understood this. John Adams famously observed that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The system itself was not Christian. It required a people who were Christ-like to make it work. In other words, if the people of God do not behave like the people of God, no system constructed by man can ever be inherently godly. Only the kingdom of God can do that, and the American system is not the kingdom. So if we're going to see stability and growth of righteousness in America, it requires Americans to be righteous. But what is coming out of the evangelical church is slavish protection of former President Trump and trying to position him for yet another term in 2024, despite a wealth of factual data showing his flawed character and many legally questionable, if not outright illegal, actions. For example, Franklin Graham went on a news program to berate the FBI for its legal search of Mar-a-Lago to recover top-secret papers that were improperly taken and stored, calling it political targeting of the former president, and the committee tried to investigate January the 6th was merely an attempt to discredit him, and Graham then called for a prayer for former President Trump instead of the current President Biden and other current leaders. Or Al Mohler, who, after initially staunchly opposing President Trump's run for office, swung completely to writing voluminous defenses of him. Megachurch pastor Robert Jeffress continued strongly supporting President Trump, even after calling the January 6th storming of the Capitol godless and a sin. Ralph Reed, two days after the Capitol storming, gave unflinching support to President Trump. And these are just a few of the examples. Yet there seems to be little attention to the very unsurprising results of this kind of blind support by the church, such as data showing that one in four Americans turned away from religion due to evangelical support for President Trump, and one in three evangelicals say that it made personal witness to non-Christians more difficult. So is it worth it? I don't believe so. What I see happening and what I'm strongly opposing is the evangelical church bending over backwards and abandoning its moral foundation in pursuit of political rule. Our kingdom is not of this world and never will be. Jesus himself refused to get involved in politics, and why should we do any differently? It's worth reading Jeremiah 12 as just one example of the Lord's response to a people abandoning their righteousness and justice in pursuit of gain. You should read the whole thing, although I'll just discuss the initial and concluding parts here. So Jeremiah is pleading with the Lord about the state of his nation, and he begins by asking, Righteous are you, Lord, when I plead my case with you. Nevertheless, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have also produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. And at the end of the chapter, the Lord responds, This is what the Lord says concerning all my wicked neighbors who do harm to the inheritance with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I am going to drive them out of their land, and I will drive the house of Judah out from among them. And it will come about that after I have driven them out, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance, and each one to his land. 
Then, if they will really learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, just as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they do not listen, then I will drive out that nation, drive it out, and destroy it, declares the Lord. Now, I don't think this is a prophecy about America. It was written to Israel and Judah. But I I do think it clearly communicates a few important things about how the Lord deals with his people and those who don't honor him. He's quite willing to remove them from a land to restore justice, which is the exact same word translated righteousness. He's quite willing to bring them back into the land if they repent. But he's also quite willing to destroy entire nations if they do not listen to his call for repentance. But then we have the counterexample in the story of Jonah, who was sent to prophesy against Nineveh, and even after the Lord had already pronounced utter judgment and destruction, the people's prompt and complete repentance caused the Lord to repent. Despite not believing that America's political system can ever substitute for the kingdom of God, I simultaneously believe that America can do great good around the world if it acts with consistent righteousness and justice. I understand that many Christians believe that Christian control over the American political and legal systems is necessary for this to take place, and they've made a judgment that extreme measures may be necessary to bring this about. Well, I see it differently. The church is not of this world, and worldly systems will never be substituted for God's kingdom. However, our past history shows that we can still do great good when the church is righteous and holy and it shows the way to unbelievers. And that is the key. Our power, if there is any, will come from demonstrating goodness and righteousness and justice, not from wresting power by violence. Violence will only prove that we don't act as we say we believe. Violence and toxic misrepresentation of the gospel eliminate any chance that unbelievers will be moved to repent and change. So the only way we can have power is to surrender it. This is inherently paradoxical, I know. But paradox is written deeply into the Bible. The most central principle of the gospel is a paradox. Those who want to live must lay down their lives. So our goal should not be power. Our goal should be fully and accurately representing the Heavenly Father, the Lord of creation, the Almighty One, here in a broken and dark world. Only once we do represent him accurately will he then give us authority to rule and reign with him. But at present, the way I see the church behaving, I don't expect he finds sufficient character in us that we should expect to be granted that authority yet. I think it's more likely, as happened in Jeremiah 12, that he will reject us until we repent. So again, I ask, is it worth it? Is political or government control worth the utter damage to our witness? I don't think so. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.